Welcome to Squawk. My name is Luke, and I'm here in the studio with Dr. Brian Nixon. And as we host this show together, this is probably, despite all of the other shows that we've done, this is going to be one of the most important that I think we've ever done as we look at different movements that are happening currently. If you haven't heard our most recent episode, it was about deliverance ministries and whether or not a Christian could be demon-possessed. There's a whole lot of that that's going to tie into what we're doing today, as I mentioned in last week's episode. The episode before that was the founding of Calvary Chapels and the Jesus Revolution. Also, at this point, our most popular episode ever, with right around 150 downloads just for that single episode, which translates into at least 1,500 listeners. Right. So definitely want to check out the stuff we've been producing recently, but this one is going to be a little heavier than what we normally do, but I think just as necessary. Yeah. In the meantime, Brian, how'd your class go this week? Luke? It went well. Um, we covered Wesley, who unquestionably is probably one of the top five most influential Christian individuals in the history of the church. People always ask me, well, who would you put in the, the five? I would always put Augustine. I'd put Aquinas. You have to put Luther. You have to put Calvin. But then I would put, obviously, John Wesley up there as well. So we, we covered John Wesley and Methodism. And then we moved on to Romanticism and Revolution. So mm. we looked at the revolutions in both America and France and how they affected the, the church and then the Romantic movement, how it affected the church. So it was a great class. And then we delve into our Spenner reading. So really, really good and, and fruitful. How about yours, Luke? Well, we continue to work on the student's personal testimony, and they were able to give me their second paragraph. So this is the part that comes after, this is who I was, then I met Jesus. And the second paragraph is, this is how it happened. So it's really the meat and potatoes of their testimony, mm -hmm. in which they also get to make an explicit presentation of the gospel in a context that doesn't allow the person to whom they're speaking to second guess mm -hmm. what they're trying to mm -hmm. do. It's like, no, this is how it happened. And so it's probably one of the most organic ways to share the gospel. And we were able to work on that. And also on the tactics book, we are starting to discuss in depth all the material that they've been reading about how to get someone from A to Z. So it's all coming together beautifully, and it's an exciting thing to be able to see them have those light bulb moments as they're writing their testimony, as you mentioned last yeah. week, reliving those moments. Yeah, and I'm so glad you're doing it because it's not just head knowledge, it's heart knowledge. They're having to think through their own testimony, and then, of course, the hands, they're 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 having to go out and do it. So you're yeah. it's a full-orb class, so appreciate that. Well, Luke, you said at the top of the broadcast that this is going to be a more in-depth study because it it really is looking at something that is fairly new, a fairly new movement. But as you said, it has many tentacles. It has a lot of leaders, or at least a handful of leaders. But the implications of it are pretty profound in a not-so-good way. So right. so uh, the broadcast today is looking at the New Apostolic Reformation. The New Apostolic Reformation. And I know you have done most of the research and most of the heavy lifting on this broadcast. So we're letting our listeners know. You're going to be hearing Luke mostly because... He has delved into this subject with great uh, clarity, and he's astute enough to really unpack it for us. And because it's one of those newer, quote-unquote, reformations that are being pushed on the church, Christians really do need to tune in. So unlike normally where I give historical background and then Luke goes and gives us some of the theological tenets, 
Luke is going to tackle both the background of where this kind of came out of, and then he's going to dig into what it is they're teaching and what it is they're promoting within the church today. So without further ado, Luke, why don't you just let our listeners know a little bit about what this quote-unquote new reformation is doing. Sure thing, Brian. And you know, this gives me a greater appreciation on having to do this this week without you having to lift that part of the historical background. Gives me a new respect for what you bring to the table every week when you're looking into the backgrounds of these folks. Because folks, if you haven't done it, there are some things that look like like a piece of thread on a on a garment and you pull on it. And you think, oh, this is just going to come right off. And then the entire garment starts unraveling. In the research process this last couple of weeks, that's sort of how this has gone about. I didn't really know everything I was going to be getting into, but this subject keeps popping up. And then as I dug into it and got past all of the the charged statements really getting to the core of this movement, I was surprised time after time after time at potentially how vulnerable many church ministries may be, hmm. maybe already be infiltrated by some of this thinking. And so that really helped me get some traction to say, yes, absolutely, this is something we need to take a look at. So I have a few peremptory remarks. Before we go and look at anything that's not really an established identity and it pops up in various places, I want to qualify what we're doing as we have in other broadcasts. But the first thing that I want to preempt is the idea of judging, because we're going to be talking about some things that there are some decided gray areas. And I want to be clear that we're not trying to judge the motives of individuals' hearts. This is what the scripture largely prevents us from doing, and the reason it prevents us from doing that is because we can't see their hearts. Mm -hmm. Now, they may show us what's in their heart, because the Bible says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh, but we're reserving judgment on what their motives may be. Some of those may seem pretty clear to you, and we can retain the things that we're talking about today just by looking at their deeds and their words, because those are things that are open mm -hmm. in evidence. And the Bible not only commands us to look at these things, but it commends us for doing proper judgment about these things. And for those who may be on the fence about should we or should we not dig into this, Paul mentions it. He says, he that is spiritual judges. And the word that's used there, anacrino, is he investigates, he interrogates all things. So in other words, once you've reached a point where you have really imbibed much of the biblical doctrine, it is expected that you take what you have understood from the Scripture and use that as your lens, and that it is a spiritual exercise to do so. If people are telling you, oh, don't judge, etc., the Bible says not not to judge. It says to judge righteous judgment, and the Word of God is our standard. And we're safe with that because that's God himself. That's different than just being critical. That's different than being mean-spirited or malicious. And I trust that none of what we're doing ever comes across that way. This is specifically for your spiritual edification. So I want to preface everything I'm about to say with those statements, because, again, we may be treading on some very uncomfortable material very shortly. The verse that I want to open up with about the new apostolic reformation is something that Jesus himself said to the woman at the well, where he said that the Father seeketh such to worship him. Who was he referring to? He said, they that worship God must worship him in spirit and in truth. And it is the truth that we are looking for, particularly truth that corresponds specifically with what God has taught us 
about the operation of the Holy Spirit and about the structure of his own body. It's important to remember the body of Christ is not something that belongs to an individual. It is a group of individuals brought together by the power of the Holy Spirit in union around Jesus Christ and his teachings, and that's it. But for those who are part of the body, there are certain expectations that Jesus Christ himself sets for us, and that there are certain teachings in which we must safely function. The people that we're going to be looking at today, the movements that we're going to be looking at today, this is not character assassinations. I've tried to be as careful as I can. In other words, we're not going to say, well, this guy was bad because he sat on the stage with this guy who was a, a brother of this guy. None of that. These are going to be things, to the best of my ability, that come from these individuals themselves in the way that they themselves speak of themselves. Keep going. We're going to be fair to those who we portray and that we let them speak for themselves to the best of our ability. Thirdly, I want to talk about the danger of pragmatism. When we look at these types of movements, we have to make a decision. And not everybody makes the same decision. But we are encouraged to make a decision where we are not going to associate with particular movements from whom we receive some form of benefit, but we may potentially receive as much detriment as we do benefit. And the scripture makes it clear, be not deceived, evil communications corrupt good manners. Now, if this is the case, then we must be careful about whom we partner with in ministry, even if we perceive a particular benefit, because the false doctrine or the bad practices may be more detrimental to us than the benefit that we believe we're receiving. As we get into the new apostolic reformation, I'll give you some basic breakdowns, and that is, this is a movement, it is not an organization that has branded itself such, but C. Peter Wagner, that's his first initial, he was the one who has been called, in some cases, the godfather of this movement. Now, in his own words, in an article in 2011 in Charisma magazine, he reaches out to the community and says, since this has largely been attributed to me, I would like to speak to it to the best of my ability about what my involvement was. And in summary of his involvement, he says that generally people who are in this wheelhouse have some fundamental disagreements with the Protestant, the charismatic, and the Pentecostal communities. So he acknowledges right away that there is a dichotomy. He states that they hold to most of the general doctrines. He says all, but there are some differentiations I'm going to bring out to all the specific Orthodox doctrines, but that they differ in the organization of the church. And the reason why he mentions that is because at its core, this movement believes that it is the movement that is bringing apostles and prophets back into the church. Now, Peter Wagner mentions that he strongly believes in the fivefold ministry. Now, for those of you who may not be familiar with that, that means he's talking about apostles, prophets, pastors, evangelists, teachers. So all the five that are mentioned there in Ephesians chapter 4. They also use a passage out of 1 Corinthians that talk about apostles being first in order. There's a two-edged sword here. One, he believes in the reorganization of the church so that it is underneath the authority of existing apostles and prophets. Number two, the authority of the prophets and apostles are the means by which the church ought to be motivated, supplied with vision, and catalyzed. So, long story short about this particular aspect, he said that he observed these types of movements happening in many places, and that this was the name that he gave to these 
separate movements that all seem to be sharing the same general strategy. Most of these movements, due to their focus on apostolic and prophetic utterances, have delved deeply into what we talked about last week, which is the deliverance ministries. So not in every single case, but in the vast majority of cases, those who are involved in deliverance ministries as the type of deliverance we spoke about last week, i.e., the deliverance of believers from demons, which we spoke about again last week, stated that is not a biblical concept. These people are doing these works in order to establish themselves as apostles and prophets within the church. Having done so, they then intend to have people that are considered below that order of spiritual gifts submit to them. And if they do so, then they too will receive the power that they need to perform these types of works. You say, well, how do you know that? So I'll supply a little bit more information known for their apologetic expertise. In an article, they provided a couple of excerpts. This was published in Biola Magazine staff, December 31st, 2015, and it was titled, A New Reformation, in quotes, that many don't realize they've joined. Now, mind you, this is nearly a decade ago, eight years ago, when this was published. I love their opening paragraph, so I'm going to read it to you verbatim. It says, If you thought apostles and prophets only lived way back in Bible times and have long since disappeared, think again. Contemporary people calling themselves apostles and prophets have many followers. They are vigorously active in churches in the United States and throughout the world. Odds are, some are active in your own community. These men and women claim they have God-given authority, divine strategies, and miraculous powers needed to advance God's earthly kingdom so that Christ can return. And they offer people a choice. If you submit to their leadership, then you too will work mighty miracles. You'll become part of a great end-time army that will bring about a world revival and cleanse the earth of evil by calling down hailstones, fire, and other judgments of God described in the New Testament book of Revelation. If you do not submit to their leadership, then at the very least you will miss out on God's end-time plans. And if you actively oppose the apostles and prophets, then brace yourself for the fallout. Others must be warned that you are the pawn of a powerful demon known as the spirit of religion. Now that just is a snapshot of the very tip of the tip of the iceberg regarding this movement and its encapsulation. As they stated in this, some of your own religious communities may have folks who are adhering to these ideas within your community. And the reasons for that are manifold. Some of them we talked about last week when we spoke about the deliverance ministries and why these two ideas are so incredibly entwined. Now, what are some of the ministries that we could speak of regarding legitimate examples of people who claim this for themselves? Well, we've already named the one gentleman, Peter Wagner. Now, he passed away in 2016. So the story continues. There's a gentleman by the name of Lou Engel. Some of you may be familiar with him. He's been considered an apostolic figure for many years. And he's been involved in a number of different movements, as they have slated them, movements of God. One that probably had come to your attention is a youth-focused ministry called The Call. That's what Lou was primarily associated with. The Call was a time where youth would be called to a prayer and fasting service. Now, sometimes this was happening in stadiums and churches. A lot of people thought this is a great focus. And you know what? There isn't anything wrong with that focus. Nothing wrong with a focus on prayer. Nothing wrong with a focus on fasting. And without calling attention to the motives of anyone's heart, nonetheless, despite the focus on prayer and fasting, 
the ulterior agenda for this was to introduce these young people to the vision that Lou himself had of a new wave of God. Now, that has since been transcended by a second move, and that is called the send. Some of you may already know what I'm talking about. What you may not know is that the underpinnings of this arise from the New Apostolic Reformation. You say, how do you know that? On Lou's website, he gives an anecdote of two men who were associated with YWAM, that's Youth with a Mission, and I know many of you know that name. Unfortunately, it appears that that organization and its training hub have largely inculcated many of the New Apostolic Reformation ideas, and their leadership is in full support of it. And you can read this. I don't have time to tell you every leader and every single statement that they've made, but if I promise you, if you dig into that, they are openly and freely associated with the New Apostolic Reformation, whose tenets we'll talk about here in a few moments. They come into Lou's office, into his house, and they begin to tell him that the evangelical burden of Billy Graham is going to fall on the youth of this time, and that in the same way the call was a very broadly accepted movement, the send was also going to be even broader. And in the send, this evangelical mantle, this mantle of evangelism, as Lou said, Jesus the evangelist was going to start manifesting in stadiums. So they're building this gigantic group of young people who are focused on evangelism. And on the surface, that looks amazing. Who wouldn't want their youth to be involved in an evangelical effort to go out and witness to people and to be trained how to do that by some of the most influential people that are out there on social media that are involved in the evangelical movement? The problem is that it's not just about the gospel. The problem is that they're teaching the young people to go out there with the gospels as accompanied with signs and wonders. Now, these are signs and wonders directly in line with the new apostolic reformation, which would be the deliverance of believers from demons. This is also involving raising the dead. Bethel Church, one of the primary leaders in this movement, they have a number of teams basically dedicated to raising the dead that over the last few years have claimed to have raised 15 people. Now, the evidence for this is on their own website at the Supernatural Training Center that they have at Bethel Church. And there's a whole bio there of the person who's currently their leader, and it is on that site that they claim to have raised 15 people from the dead. Now, this is in support of an apostolic and prophetic commissioning. It is this type of commissioning that they are putting upon the young people that they're claiming to send out to preach the gospel. Now, why is this a problem? Well, we'll talk about that in just a few more minutes. But this has a direct tie to deliverance ministers, where they claim to cast demons out of believers. And so this becomes less about the gospel and more about the alleged signs that follow it. Just for some names for you, Daniel Adams, Isaiah Saldivar, Greg Locke, Alexander Pagani, Lou Engel, Frank Hammond, Peter Wagner, Bill Johnson, Francis Chan, and still others are intimately involved in this movement. They have a massive social media presence, and they have large influence regarding these specific tenets. They see themselves as generals, and that's not just me saying that they say that. This is from them. They believe as the new reorganizers of the Church of Jesus Christ that they are going to rebuild the church in the vision that allows prophets and apostles to run the show. This is something that's claimed very specifically in the article that I mentioned from 2011 by Peter Wagner, the alleged founder of this movement. Not really a founder, just an observer. But he clearly imbibes these principles. In a recent film put out by Locke Media, they stated themselves, after having 
done a number of these types of services, that they were as though they were generals commissioning those who come to them through the deliverance ministry that they have to go out and do the same thing. So they see this pre-resurrection apostolic focus of what happened when Christ sent the 70 out, and it happens to largely deal with deliverance for Christians. We challenged that proposition directly last week to say that there was absolutely no evidence anywhere in Scripture that any person who was ever delivered from a demon was a believer beforehand. There's no example of it in, in Scripture. So I'm going to repeat one of the things that I said last week. These individuals come forward and they say, well, show me a verse in Scripture that shows that a believer can't be possessed. And the answer to that is they are shifting the burden of proof to cause you to defend a point that you were not making. It's not a genuine manner to argue. It means that they do not, at the end of the day, have solid evidence for their assertions that is based in the Word of God. They are going in and delivering people from demons. There's no doubt about that. But those people are not believers, regardless of their profession, because of what Scripture teaches. And they try to use experience in these meetings to override the minds of those who might doubt the veracity of their claims while at the same time establishing themselves as apostolic and prophetic authorities. So again, it's a two-edged sword. Now, to give you an inside view as to what happens in these services where apostolic authority is manifesting, the services begin with an indictment of those who would not participate or who would resist it, saying that those individuals are possessed by the spirit of religion. They say that that is the largest problem in the church, that religion is getting in the way of biblical interpretation. They teach that when the word spirit is used in the Bible, it almost always means a person without a body, such as the spirit of fear, the spirit of slumber, the spirit of heaviness, the spirit of grief, all of these types of things. Now, then they go way beyond that to create an entire roster of spirits, quote unquote, a person without a body, in which they refer to demonic presences that have control over these negative dynamics and therefore are demons that need to be cast out of you in order for you to have victory in these areas in your life. And the list is a long one. And it is not one that comes from the Bible. As we spoke about again last week, sanctification has no mention of any demonic deliverance that is necessary. Does that mean that we deny the presence of demons? No. Does that mean that we deny that Christians cannot be harassed and oppressed by demons? No. What it does mean is that the manner in which that is dealt with is not according to the method that is exercised by deliverance ministers. And for the youth in particular to be integrated into these services for the spiritual benefit of someone who claims to be an apostle or someone who claims to be a prophet is to expose them to something that is created with a specific purpose to both give apostolic authority to the one who's trying to demonstrate it and two, to remove that individual through their personal experience from the clear statements in the Word of God. Now, there's much to be said about how these services are conducted, but here's the inside scoop. I've been in one of these services myself very recently, and what happens is they promise people relief through deliverance. But what I found is in mixed in with all of these renunciations where they have people renouncing all of these particular sins, such as witchcraft in the Masonic Lodge, etc., secret oaths from secret societies. They also throw in their generational curses, which are not biblical and have nothing to do with what they're saying they're about. The first thing that they do is call people to accept Jesus Christ. That's great. We absolutely affirm that. There is something more that I'm going to speak about here in a moment. Frankly, according to what we understand from Scripture, 
accepting Jesus Christ is the only thing that anyone ever needs to do in order to be freed or delivered because all of our spirit is captive to Jesus Christ when we accept him. We are sealed. We belong to him. Again, we talked at length about this last week. And so the renunciations follow those who have just prayed the sinner's prayer. And then a little bit further along, the need to confess one's sin is brought up. And a number of sins are named being primarily about unforgiveness, bitterness, Sins of the Spirit are named from which believers rightly need to be cleansed in order to have a functional fellowship with God. Not a relationship, but a fellowship with God. So people that have perhaps been in sin for many years, sins of bitterness and unforgiveness and lust, etc., these types of things are being cleansed from these individuals, which is, again, a very positive thing. The problem with this is not the fact that they're being asked to accept Jesus or that they're being asked to confess their sins. It's that after having done that, the deliverance minister begins to go through a list of demons that he is calling out of people. He promises them if they follow the renunciations that he provides, that this will break the demonic power that's within them and deliver them from these demonic spirits that have been troubling them and plaguing them, preventing them from having spiritual victory, etc., but the real scoop is that having accepted Jesus Christ, or alternatively been a Christian already, and having confessed and repented of one's sins, these are the biblical methods by which one receives freedom, peace, joy, the filling of the Spirit. But all of that, which is clearly biblical, is being attributed not to the Scripture and not as the primary and singular process by which one is delivered, but rather it's being attributed to the deliverance minister having called the demons that are associated with these various areas out of the individual themselves. So in other words, they're getting the effect of what they should be getting if they, number one, accept Jesus, number two, confess and repent of their sins. But then it's being attributed to being delivered from demonic possession of some type. So that is very disingenuous. And I sat there and I watched it happen. I heard it with my own ears. This is not something that I'm making up. And this was a huge broadcast that went out all over the country. This is the method by which this is being done. And you don't need my word for it. There's plenty of YouTube videos out there, which I, again, don't encourage you to go and look at, but there's plenty of evidence online that this is how it's done. So therefore, the glory of God and the power of Christ are confused and obscured by the superimposition, the overlaying of this renunciation generational curse breaking process on top of the biblical teachings. They're using Jesus's process while inserting their own and taking credit for the peace and joy that only he brings. Now, one of the other things that we want to talk about, because that's a, that's sort of the deliverance ministry segment that has to do with the apostolic reformation. But there's another aspect of this as well that you may see in these deliverance services in which these apostles and prophets, so-called, are manifesting the power of God. And that is, people are falling out. They're falling over. They're falling backwards. They're being slain in the Spirit. The Bible makes it very clear that the Spirit of the prophet is subject to the prophet. In other words, the individual who is either receiving the attention or providing the ministry is in full control of their spirit. And if they are not, then that is not an act of God. And I want you to think about that because there's a lot of times where people attribute works of God to the actions that are happening in the congregation where everything is completely chaotic and out of order. And yet 1 Corinthians makes it very clear that says, let everything be done decently and in order. So there's a clear juxtaposition about what they're telling you to look at and to judge them by 
And what the Bible says is the clear effect of the Spirit. If you remember, the prophet Elijah was looking to hear the voice of God, and there was an earthquake, and there was a great wind, and then there was a fire, and the Spirit of God was in none of those things, but he came in a still small voice. Why? Because the Spirit of God does not draw attention to his ministry. He brings all glory to Jesus Christ. And any ministry that claims to be utilizing him as some type of a force and creating a chaotic response amongst the crowd is not in keeping with what the scriptures teach about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Now, again, we're not talking about motives of hearts. We're talking about words and deeds. And these things are clearly not in keeping with scripture, regardless of what our personal experiences may tell us. If there's no evidence of these actions of the Spirit whereby people are levitating or barking like dogs or animals or evidencing all types of different behaviors, I want to point this out. Even traditional Pentecostals and Charismatics reject the New Apostolic Reformation, and they have current doctrinal statements, as in the case of the Assemblies of God, the largest Pentecostal denomination. This is spoken of more in the books that were written by those folks that wrote at Biola, which were, let me give you their names, R. Douglas Givett who's a professor of philosophy, Holly Pivick. They co-authored a number of these books, but they also wrote this article. Again, as I stated, much of my information was drawn from their analysis because it's an excellent one. In regard to all of these things that we've already mentioned about the internal workings of these meetings and that to which people who were trying to follow these individuals who claim to be prophets and apostles are going to be exposed, particularly our youth. You'll also be interested to know that Todd White who is on the fringe of the Pentecostal movement, also apostolic movement, is often involved in these meetings. He's also involved in YWAM meetings. There are a number of videos where he's present there. So for those of you who are thinking that YWAM Youth with a Mission is just a place where kids can go and learn good things, you're not wrong about half of that. The other problem is that there are a lot of people to whom your children and teens and young adults are being exposed that are not biblical. And they are on this agenda to send these young people out into the world to preach the gospel under the auspices of apostolic or prophetic power. You say, well, why is it, what's the big problem about that? Because if this happens the way it's going to happen, in that the youth are going to be sent out with an unreasonable expectation, they're going to fail in their mission, and then they are going to be blamed for the failure, for not having enough faith, for not having enough interest, for not being hungry enough. I'll give you an analogy. A number of years ago, I was working at a place where I was setting appointments over the phone for water systems. And the sales group that worked alongside our appointment setting group was a commission only sales group. And I would hear some of their addresses to themselves as they were trying to get people amped up to go out and sell these. Now they were commission only. What that means on a practical level is this, the company would bring in people without having to pay them at all. Their names would just be on a roster of 1099 contractors. That means that the individual who was the salesman was responsible for all of their own gas, they were responsible for all of their own personal expenses. They did not receive any withholding benefits from the company. They did not receive any health benefits from the company. All that they made, what they were being paid for, was based on what they sold. So if they didn't make sales, regardless of the quality of the company's product or the quality of the company's training for them to sell the product, they received the brunt. And I heard it many times. Oh, well, the only people who are going to do well in this industry are those who are hungry for it. They're going to be the ones who succeed. So if you're not the kind of person that's really hungry for it, then, you know, tough luck. Well, in the meantime, there's all these people who are doing this because it was an easy entry level job in their mind. And then they're spending all this money out of their own pocket. They're putting all their own effort into it with very little involvement from the company. And 
If they fail, no big deal for the company. They can just go replace them with another warm body. But how devastating for them to be impacted by potentially the quality of the product that they were selling or the lack of training that they received to sell it or the unethical practices that they were told to execute in order to get those sales that they desperately needed. The very type of methodology that was used to try to get results created unethical and dishonest salesmen. So what I'm saying is with a results-oriented, alleged prophetically and apostolic authority structure that sends these people out there to do these same miracles and works because they have received the authority from the apostle themselves or the covering of the apostle is inevitably going to fail. But that failure is going to not be experienced by the apostle or the prophet, so-called, that sent them. It's going to be personally and spiritually experienced by the individual that was sent. So I say this because this is the greatest concern that I have about this movement, is that they're going to utilize our young people, the next generation of Christianity, under the auspices of carrying the mantle of Billy Graham with evangelism to the world, which is, by every examination, an amazing premise. But the ulterior agenda is to radicalize and to recruit these young people into the new apostolic reformation, whereby they will be apostolically commissioned by the reorganizers of the church to go out there and do this work. And what we're going to end up with is a, is a generation of deceived and broken young people, something that's the last thing in the world the church needs at the moment. If you're considering your young people, your young adults, your youth participating in these types of activities, Please do them the favor of looking at the speakers, check out where they come from, check out who they're associated with, because the spiritual stability of your young person, of your youth group, may depend on your vigilance to make sure that they're actually getting sent out by somebody who's doing it the biblical way. So there's another level that I'm going to take this to as well. Youth with a mission has been something that a lot of folks have sent their young people to. Folks, that organization, for all intents and purposes, is gone. It is not the organization that it used to be because it is largely being staffed and run by people who are fully bought into the new apostolic reformation. One of the ministries that's also associated with YWAM, as it's called, is Circuit Riders. This group is an ecumenical group that comes in to assist churches in a number of different outreach endeavors. And while they are decentralized in the sense that they do not necessarily answer to a singular authority, their training hub and their information that they receive on how to do these things is directly related to the New Apostolic Reformation and all of the deliverance ministries that are there. And what you'll find is that when they come in to assist you in your different youth meetings or in your churches, etc., they're going to set up a pattern, a template that looks very similar to the types of services that I described, where people are needing to be, quote, delivered from things. So they're building a foundation and normalizing these types of processes so that as the church is or is not vigilant, they can then shoehorn into your church these other things. You say, well, what's the big problem with that? Well, one of the major biblical tenets that's violated is what we would call pre-millennial theology. Now, Calvary is clearly a pre-millennial community, yet these individuals, as you saw in the article that I already read, states, these men and women claim that they have God-given authority, divine strategies, and miraculous powers needed to advance God's earthly kingdom so that Christ can return. And the other article that I mentioned written by Peter Wagner, he makes it clear that they believe in dominionism. And I'll read an excerpt of that. You say, well, what's dominionism? According to Wagner, this refers to the desire that some of my friends and I have to follow Jesus and do what he wants. One of the things he does want, he taught us to pray for in the Lord's Prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This means that we do our best to see what we know is characteristic of heaven work its way into the warp and woof of our society here on earth. Think of heaven 
no injustice, no poverty, righteousness, peace, prosperity, no disease, love, no corruption, no crime, no misery, no racism, and I could go on. Wouldn't you like your city to display those characteristics? Now, of course, everybody wants that to happen. The problem is they believe that that is a methodology by which they will bring Christ's kingdom to earth, which is post-millennial. It denies the rapture. It denies the literal kingdom of Christ in the way that the Bible teaches. Now, these groups also believe in extra-biblical revelation. Again, Wagner speaks to this. He says, some object to the notion that God communicates directly with us, supposing that everything that God wanted to reveal, he revealed in the Bible. This cannot be true, however, because there is nothing in the Bible that says it has 66 books. Did you see what he did there? It actually took God a couple of hundred years to reveal to the church which writing should be included in the Bible and which should not, which is also not an accurate statement. For reference, just read Geisler's The Bible from God to Us. That is extra-biblical revelation. So he basically thinks that at this point he's established the fact that extra-biblical revelation happens all the time. Even so, Catholics and Protestants still disagree on the number of books. Beyond that, I believe that prayer is a two-way street. Obviously it is. We speak to God and expect him to speak with us. We can hear God's voice. He also reveals new things to prophets, there's the assumption, as we have seen. The one major rule governing any new revelation from God is that it cannot contradict what has already been written in the Bible. It may supplement it, however. Here I need remind you, every movement that states that they continue to have prophets always forms this loophole. If their prophets ever contradict each other, it's not that they actually contradicted each other, it's that they're receiving additional revelation that supplements what the previous prophet said, even if they are completely in juxtaposition with one another. So this is a very interesting claim when they're speaking of their apostolic authority, because that exalts them to the place where they are given the ability and the authority to speak on the same level of Scripture. This is a very dangerous thing. Now, when it comes to their bringing the kingdom on earth, the way that they do that is through the deliverance ministries, among other things. So this is a means to an end. So before we get too excited about all these moves of God that are happening out there due to deliverance ministries, we need to realize that this is happening under the auspices of establishing apostolic authority, under the auspice of post-millennial theology. Well, it's pretty important that we actually have a positive and a literal view of the coming kingdom of God, because, and if we don't remember, the Bible says this, Many shall say unto me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not done incredible works and cast out devils in your name? And what does he say to them? Depart from me, I never knew you, you workers of iniquity. That doesn't mean that everybody who's involved in these types of ministries are going to have that kind of conversation with the Lord, but it does mean that there are people who are engaged in those activities who clearly do not know him. This is something we need to be very vigilant about. In addition to the dominionism, or kingdom now, that he clearly, in his own words, openly professes, these groups have been hijacked by a number of political agendas. In their sense, in their ambition to be widely dispersed among many denominations, they've also taken upon themselves the action of many social movements in which they are empowering people. So in other words, since they are very pragmatic about sending people out on apostolic missions, they will create niches within the body in order to try to appeal to a very specific demographic and empower them as a unit to go out and do this work. That in itself is not a biblical strategy. You cannot divide the body as a means to build the body. The body is built in unity around Jesus Christ, not through social empowerments by which people have a secular fraternity that they utilize in order to try to accomplish the will of God, because the body is of Christ's construction and of Christ's unity, not of man's strategy. This is one of the reasons why the Pentecostals and the Charismatics disagree with this, because as these apostolic and prophetically gifted individuals try to step on the scene, they are 
bringing their own agendas, their own organizational structure to the church, something which they clearly affirm. And that can take any number of shapes. And if you resist them, it's because you're seeing the Bible or seeing the New Testament church through a religious lens, and you need to be delivered from the spirit of religion. And I'm not being facetious. These are things that come from their own mouths. Now, a gentleman at Wagner University that's unrelated to the one that we mentioned before states this, and he stated this in an interview, I believe, to Rolling Stone, which is an odd place to find this, but this is a secular view from somebody from Wagner University. It says, the new apostolic reformation, these are his words, doesn't have a formal church structure. Rather, it comprises a network of self-styled apostles who cultivate their own followings and also lend one another an air of authority through mutual recognition of their divine gifts. He says, it's sort of like Al-Qaeda in the sense that anyone can pop up anywhere and say that they're Al-Qaeda. Now, the gentleman who's saying this is a professor of politics at Wagner University who has studied the new apostolic reformation. The religious movement is extraordinary, Snow says, in that it is hyper-politicized and literally demonizes its opponents. If you're not an advocate for their theology, you're on the side of Satan. They view those who stand in opposition to Christian nationalism as afflicted by demons, and they view their struggle to impose biblical order as, quote, spiritual warfare. Far from praying to be raptured to heaven, as many other evangelicals do, NAR adherents anticipate reigning alongside Christ as wealthy and favored kings and priests during his long heavenly rule on earth. Now, here's some tenets for you, and I know this is a lot of information, but as I stated, this is going to go deep because I want you to recognize these tenets. So according to a couple of different sites that are considered to be apologetic sites, they put together this list of tenets. Number one, these groups believe in new revelation. That comes in confirmation to what Wagner says. The apparent danger to new revelation is the possible contradiction to Scripture and the duping of people to believe in an ongoing new revelation. Number two, Scripture is not central. Despite their claims to hold to traditional views of Scripture, if they believe that there's new revelation, they clearly do not. So despite his claims that they accept all of the apostolic creeds, etc., etc., because they view themselves as apostles and prophets, they are free to add to the Word of God those things which they believe to be in supplementation to it. This is dangerous to not subject everything from today's so-called apostles and prophets to the word of God. If anything, it is a formula for heresy. Three, signs and wonders. Jesus says that it's a wicked and adulterous generation that seeks signs. This group states that it is the very thing that's missing from our presentation of the gospel, that without the supernatural signs and wonders, we have no means by which to establish the authority of the gospel, despite the fact that we already have the word of God, and we have already had a generation of apostles and prophets that did the very thing that he's saying still needs to be done. Number four, present-day apostles, nothing in Scripture necessitates present-day apostles. Number five, present-day prophets, nothing in Scripture necessitates present-day prophets. Women, pastors, and elders, so these groups are egalitarian. Now, this is in clear contradiction to the Word of God. We had an episode on that, Can Women Be Pastors? I believe it's the third episode from previous season, season number one. So go back and review that if you have a little bit more questions about that. So now that we've looked at some of the things that have been said about this, and we've looked at the impact that this could potentially have on the church, what should we do in response? Now, according to this book, one of the books that was written by this team from Biola University, they give the following instructions. They say, their teaching is that churches must submit to their, speaking of the apostles and prophets, their leadership so they can advance God's kingdom and prepare the earth for Christ's return. Their advice is, hear it out. In other words, hear what they're saying, listen to it carefully. Number two, test it carefully. Number three, these beliefs do not represent the views of most charismatics or classical Pentecostals, but are rather entirely different. Again, a fact that's acknowledged by Wagner himself. Now, one of the things that may be used while you're trying to analyze this is the fact that not all NAR leaders work together or agree on everything. So in other words, you can go to a place 
that is showing some of these things, and yet they may not be on board with everything, but they have nonetheless been influenced by this movement and may shortly capitulate to the additional tenets that are being taught. Also, people that are in the New Apostolic Reformation believe that God is always doing a new thing, and they hope not to miss out on what they refer to as, quote, the current move of the Holy Spirit by focusing on a past move. So in other words, if something didn't go quite right in the past with the alleged move of God, that's okay because God's always doing a new thing and there's always a new shiny object to be distracted by when it comes to the next move of the Holy Spirit. That seems to be in quite a contradiction to how Scripture teaches. You say, well, how can you be so confident about that? What we're told about the day of Pentecost is when the Spirit himself came to earth in the manner in which he did, according to the answer of Jesus Christ's prayer to the Father. And I will pray the Father, and he will send you another comforter who will be with you forever, whom the world doesn't know, neither can they know, but ye know him, he dwelleth with you and shall be in you. This is clear from Scripture. There's no evidence of people being slain in the Spirit. The apostles were not laying all over the street. They weren't slaying the people that in the Spirit or causing them to fall over when they were preaching to the people in the city of Jerusalem during the Feast of Pentecost. People were being converted and saved. They heard their own tongues from their native areas while Peter was preaching. We don't find any of these other signs accompanying the individuals that are being converted. We don't find even in that crowd that anyone was having an exorcism performed upon them. So we need to look very carefully at the claims that are being made here because, again, we we lack biblical evidence to actually say that this is happening. Now, as of 2014, where the book that I was reading, when the book that I was reading was written, there were already three-plus million who openly attended new apostolic Reformation churches. Now, folks, again, that's been almost 10 years ago, so the number has grown. It's important to look at their claims particularly. I'm going to review. They claim apostolic and prophetic authority, whereby those individuals alone are going to rule the church. They must govern the church. Pastors and teachers and evangelists must submit to their authority if they hope to be part of the reshaping of the church. Also, there's the idea that they perform signs and wonders. This is the main demonstration of that authority, and it is only able to be shared in if you are willing to submit to their authority. They also believe in a apostolic commissioning where they believe themselves to be generals, sending out their new converts and their new recruits on this apostolic mission to evangelize the world. And we talked about the positive and negative of that. But the greatest danger here is how they're potentially going to cut the youth and even those who are young in the faith, regardless of their age, cut them off from the general ministry of the church by challenging the church to do what they're doing, saying, well, we have the evidence of the power of God because our leaders are doing X, Y, Z in their church meetings and you guys aren't. You guys are possessed by the spirit of religion. So you're seeing how quickly this conversation can change and flip by those who are potentially being influenced by the books that are being written by these individuals, by the films that are being produced by these individuals, by the social media influence of these individuals. And some of them are touching far closer to home than you could possibly imagine and are connected unwittingly to some people that you may respect. So do your due diligence. Check this out. Be the watchman on the wall, and if necessary, warn your youth groups about this. Talk to your senior pastors about this. It is gigantic. So when you're seeing these types of things, if, if you're sensing that there's a need for concern, have that conversation and let the, the pastors and the leaders of your church dig into the movements, educate themselves, and then they'll turn around and provide you with a solid response and a strategy to how to deal with these types of dynamics within the modern church. 
I trust as, as we've looked at these things, we looked at both the tenants, we've looked at the structure, we looked at people's descriptions of themselves within this movement. We've looked at the post-millennial aspect of this movement, the dominionism aspect of this movement. We've looked at its apostolic commission. We've looked at some of the agencies that are involved with this. I've given you the names of individuals who are prominent leaders, but this is just a small sample size. And I've told you that this is growing rapidly. And that's just not my assessment. This is something that you'll find no matter where you're looking. So whether you've been pulled into this because you believe this is part of the new work of God that's happening, I'll end with this discussion. In the film that I viewed recently, the claim was made that it is by deliverance. They said deliverance is the vehicle for the awakening of the church. So in all your praying of re for revival, in all your zealousness toward God, to see the church revive, to see revival in your own life, don't allow an unbiblical movement with an unbiblical organization and an unbiblical commission to come in and hijack that and potentially prevent you from seeing the very thing that you're praying for because they've presented a counterfeit for that right in front of you. I know we've talked about some heavy things. We've talked about some things about which you may be uncomfortable. However, I do encourage you to be vigilant. I've given you the names of individuals that you can check out what I've said. Dig into this yourself. Be aware that you need to view this through the lens of Scripture, and then do your due diligence. If you have any additional questions, feel free to send them to us at calvary.college at calvaryabq.org. Calvary dot college at calvaryabq.org. Again, this has been Squawk, and until next time, thank you for listening.